This is the Fight Back Podcast, hosted by Georgia Berry. If you're passionate about martial arts, mental health, and women lifting up women, then stay right where you are, babe. This podcast is for you. You need to know that nobody shapes me but me. My guest today on the Fight Back podcast is Dr. Alex Channon. I'm going to be recommending this episode as compulsory listening for every single martial artist that I know, male or female. Alex is a super smart guy and we get into some really, really interesting topics that could each on their own be probably debated for hours. But just to give you a bit of a taste, some of the papers that Alex has written include pink gloves still give black eyes, do you hit girls? and sexualization of the fighter's body perspectives from MMA. So men, women, you know, we train together and there are some issues that come up because of that and some things that we need to pay attention to. So pay attention to this episode. It's really good. Alex, hello and welcome to the Fight Back podcast. Can you introduce yourself to everyone? Who are you and what do you do? Hi, Georgia. Yes, thank you very much for having me on. Um, so I'm a senior lecturer in sports studies and physical education at the University of Brighton in the UK. Um, I'm also a researcher who's very interested in martial arts. I've, I've done a number of studies of martial arts training culture and media representation and things related to that uh, over the last few years. Uh, I'm a practicing martial artist as well. I have done kickboxing before, uh, as well as kung fu, karate and most recently, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, although uh, over the last few months, obviously haven't done any of that, uh, given the circumstances we're in. Uh, but yeah, I love talking about, um, about martial arts related uh, issues and, and the stuff that you cover in the podcast is really interesting to me. So uh, very excited to be on here and uh, chat to you about the, uh, the work that I've done. Yeah, I think so. The way that I found you originally was through love fighting, hate, violence. And that really sums up some of the core issues surrounding martial arts. So talk us through it. What is love fighting hate violence? Okay. So in a nutshell, uh, love fighting hate violence, I'll just call it LFHV for short. Um, it's something that uh, my, uh, well, a chap that I've done a lot of work with Christopher Matthews, um, my research partner and um, uh, colleague and friend. Um, we've been working on for quite a few years uh, on a number of different projects uh, together to do with uh, you know, martial arts, subcultures and, and what have you and um, love fighting hate violence it, it kind of grew out of um, a developing recognition from our, our separate studies uh, as well as our work together um, that there was something really important for practitioners of martial arts when it came to this question of um, you know is, is doing martial arts violence you know are you a violent person if you practice martial arts when you fight in a, in a ring or in a cage you know is that a, a violent interaction and so on and by interviewing people um, about this this issue, as well as you know other other sort of connected topics uh, to do with things like gender and and inclusion and uh, ethics and so on, we often came up against this this sort of difficult moment where people wanted to sort of say, well, you know, it, it looks like violence, or you know, maybe it is violence, but it's it's not real violence, or it might be violent, but I'm not a violent person. So there was something going on in this sort of complicated understanding of where the violence fits in martial arts um, that gave people pause and they weren't entirely happy with those kind of labels and that language and they often try to articulate it in a way that doesn't really come out very clearly 
Um, and as, as martial artists ourselves, um, Christopher has boxed for a long time as a boxer, um, and myself with my, my background, you know, we'd sort of gone through that same process as well, that there's something quite different about punching and kicking and, and throwing people in a martial arts setting compared to doing those exact same actions in other settings. Um, you know, very different in terms of how you experience it as an individual, different in terms of the meanings that society gives it and so on. So we wanted to try and think around this and, and uh, you know, get to the bottom of, of what it was that made that different. And, you know, through our, our research and through thinking about this and using different sort of social scientific theories, um, we, we tried to sort of settle on what is the point of difference between what we call fighting, the stuff that we're doing in, in a market, martial arts setting um, and what we, we're referring to as violence or all the other stuff that we don't you know that people generally don't like uh, and associate as, as being a negative and a bad thing uh, the kind of thing that they don't want to be associated with you know I'm not a violent person sort of thing and we, we sort of settled on this idea that really there's there's a key point of difference here which is uh, to do with consent so when we are you know in a boxing ring and we're punching each other we've explicitly consented um, to being in that environment and to doing that action, right? There's no point in me being in a boxing ring if I'm not prepared to be punched. It's kind of, a, you know, it's a central part of the, uh, of the activity. So consent is a, is a really clear um, element that makes that interaction, that punching interaction, very different to uh, the exact same actions committed between people outside of a, of a boxing environment. Um, and that idea of you know, consent is what separates this, this feeling of this is something I want to do. This is something I'm happy with. It's something I enjoy. It's something I think positively about from, um, you know, the same actions carrying very negative connotations outside um, made us think, well, if martial artists are um, you know, really passionate about this difference between fighting and violence and consent is the thing that helps to, you know, to differentiate between those two, then maybe we can develop some way of using martial arts to teach people about consent. So I think I've, I've probably rushed through about uh, two hours worth of uh, really detailed discussion in that really, really sort of fine nutshell. Uh, but that's kind of what we're, we're aiming for here is to use martial arts activities as a way to help teach people, particularly young people, um, about consent. And how are you doing that? Are you putting people into a ring and saying, you know, do you want to be here? Are you talking to them about it outside of a training situation? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, so so far what we've what we've done with love fighting hate violence, it's not uh, you know really well developed and, and sort of um, you know well staffed sort of initiative. You know, we don't have headquarters and a boxing ring or anything like that. Um, it's more just a, a sort of a, a set of ideas that we've started to uh, to coalesce into something that other people can use. So we've got the the web presence, we've got a manifesto, we've got a blog. Uh, social media we've been a little bit inactive lately but we, we post um, you know blog articles and opinions and, and, and what have you about current things uh, up on there um, to sort of inspire discussion really around these sorts of issues um, you know what differentiates a punch in the ring from punch outside the ring let's get talking about that so it's partly a kind of um, I don't like to use this phrase really because it's a bit cheesy but that sort of awareness raising thing right let's have a discussion about this let's let's put it out in the open let's articulate it clearly um, but also what we've what we've done which is a bit more tangible is we've created a coaching toolkit um, and I can send you a copy of this actually uh, George I'll, I'll post you a copy out to um, to where you are so you can have a look at it where we've developed uh, a bunch of different sort of activities I want to say that they're kind of like games that we, we might play um, that use martial arts equipment or martial arts style drills um, as a way of teaching some of the lessons that we associate with the LFHV uh, sort of message. So if we think about consent, 
uh, one of the games that we, we used to teach that is um, we call it uh, hit me. So uh, a little bit like Simon says, where you, know, you, you, you try to do the action, but only when Simon says you should do it. We have people partnered up and one's got pads on and the other is, is hitting the pads and they move around you know, with some music, perhaps nice high energy sort of thing. And the person with the pads puts them up and says, hit me. And then you throw the, the one, two or so, or so on. Um, but then they might also throw the pads up and say something else to, to fake them out or something. So it's a little game. Uh, if you can imagine doing this, if any of your, your listeners have, have coached young children, um, kind of a competitive element, they try and catch each other out. It's fun. It's enjoyable. And we go through this and, you know, we then switch over pad holders and see, how, you know, how many times did you, did you fool your partner and so on? Who's the winner, et cetera, et cetera. So we're having these little fun games. And then afterwards, you know, a very quick, you know, one or two minutes at the most sort of discussion. Okay, so what does it mean? Uh, why do we do this hit me thing? What, what do you think that means? Um, you know, in, in what circumstances should you hit each other, right? Okay, you can hit each other when you're in the ring. When should you not hit each other? Okay, when you're outside of the ring, you know, it's not appropriate there. So we're using a kind of uh, a fun game that's based around this thing that we know is very enjoyable, hitting pads, moving around, doing whatever. Uh, we're using that as a way in to sort of, almost be like a kind of like a physical metaphor for the, the values and the ethics that we want to teach um, to young people. We know if we just sit them down and try and lecture them on, you know, how important consent is to being a good person, um, that's not really going to sink in. But putting it, dressing it up in this kind of game, there's a few others as well that we've, that we've designed, which you can have a look at in a coaching toolkit. Hopefully that will be a bit more of an effective way to teach them about these, um, these important lessons. And uh, there's so many things we're going to get into here, but let's let's define consent for adults. What is it? Why is it important? In, you know, assuming that maybe a lot of adults become adults, not really having a full understanding of of what consent is. Well, that's a huge question. <laughs> um, yeah, we could be here all day on that one. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the best way for us to think about this um, as adults is to think about, you know, things that are explicit and things that we know for certain that the other person that I'm interacting with is happy to do this thing um, that I want to do. So for particularly for young adults, we would think about consent primarily in terms of sexual consent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for sure, I'm, I'm aware of... Um, uh, certainly in North America, this is a major issue on campuses. I imagine it's the same in Australia. It certainly is in the UK um, for particularly young people um, who suddenly got this, this huge amount of freedom and, you know, they're out, they're going out partying, drinking and, and doing, you know, you know, goodness knows what with each other. Um, and just assuming that if everybody else is doing this, then then he or she must be up for doing this thing that we're all here to do. Um, we would think about that as a kind of implicit consent, perhaps if somebody puts themselves in a situation where everybody else expects that they're okay with doing X, Y, and Z, um, but they're not actually okay with it. They don't really want to do it. Um, and the people that are in that situation don't recognize that and proceed as though it was okay. Um, then you've got, you know, potentially you, you're, you're violating people and you're, you're going to be hurting people and doing things that they, um, they're not happy with that might hurt them, that might scar them and so on. So by putting this, you know, really foregrounding the importance of being clear and people having, um, you know, an open and, um, and clear dialogue with each other about, you know, are you okay with doing this with me? Yes, I am. This is what I want to do. Excellent. You know, that's great. And then we can proceed and nobody's going to be, uh, nobody's going to be hurt. Equally, we would encourage people to think about consent in terms of, you know, standing up for themselves and being clear about exactly what they want, where their boundaries lie, what their limits are. Um, and not feeling a pressure to go along with something just because everybody else is. 
And this is one of the things that we've, we've kind of addressed in LFHV is as much as um, figuring out what's appropriate in a certain space and as much as negotiating with our partners, what we're happy to do with each other, we also need to be very clear about, you know, setting our own boundaries and being able to resist um, what's normal in a space if we're not happy with it. Um, a good example of this, I think, would be certain types of coaching methods where maybe we've got, let's say, you know, a particular old school kind of coach who, who thinks, you know, everybody has to do what I say. And, you know, the best way to learn is to sort of walk through the fire. And perhaps we're pushing people too hard. We're, we're potentially putting them at risk. Uh, or, we, you know, we're putting people off and people leave our gyms because we expose them to things that they're not, they're not ready for, they're not happy with. So helping people to stand up and say, you know what, actually, I'm not comfortable with doing this yet, or this isn't something that I really want to do, um, is, you know, every bit as important as helping people to figure out what it is that your partners want to do with you. So we've tried to build that into LFHV as well. It's not just about recognizing what other people are happy with. It's also about standing up and asserting our own, uh, our own boundaries. So I guess, you know, without answering like a really comprehensive way, uh, what consent is, that's kind of the way that we're thinking about it in, in LFHV. Now, that's perfect. And it frames my next question really nicely, which is, you know, while you're speaking in terms of what we would imagine as the classic example in terms of sexual consent, because I and you, you know, I talk about these kind of questions so often relating to martial arts, I immediately think of sparring, you know, in sparring, maybe at a club, there is an implicit level. So for us, for my club, it's quite hard on a Friday night. And so if you turn up to a Friday night sparring, it is implied that you are at a level where you're going to get quite touched up. More than just play sparring, this is going to be high level sparring because these are people preparing to compete. And however, I wonder how problematic that is, that it's all implied, it's all assumed, oh, well, this is Friday night sparring, and that it's just become, I suppose, normal that rather than us having a two-second conversation at the start where, say, I say, I want to go an 8 out of 10, and the other person says, I want to go a 10 out of 10, and maybe we just don't even partner up then, we turn away, but everybody's afraid. I don't know whether their ego is afraid or what the hesitation is there, or they just assume it's not the thing that's done, but there's no conversation about that. So there is no explicit consent about how hard people want to go in sparring, and I'm sure that's common in in most clubs and in even just at the end of class sparring, there are always going to be people who go hard and who aren't aware of what the level that their hardness is compared to somebody else's. You know, my 10 might be their five, particularly if I'm a man and they're a woman. So what kind of work can we do? What kind of message can we spread if we talk about raising awareness to bringing more explicit consent into sparring? Yeah, I think you've, you've really hit the nail on the head with that. It's such an important issue with, and I recognize this in my own practice as well, you know, even someone who, who spends a lot of time thinking about this and writing about it and, you know, preaching about the importance of explicit consent. I also, you know, get sort of caught up in that implicit and we don't need to talk about it openly and you don't, you know, particularly as a, as a newer person in a gym, you feel perhaps you you don't have the right to, um, to sort of speak up and, and assert yourself in that sense. Um, you know, and, you know, at least like you say, just, just put it on the table, you know, I'd rather not go at 10 out of 10 right now. Um, and it, it, there's a norm inside most gyms, I would say that you, you wouldn't do that. Um, and who wants to be the one that breaks the norm, especially as someone who, you know, isn't 
perhaps um, you know a, a very firm insider in in the social group. So yeah, it is a, an issue because when we don't, you know, when we go into a, a sparring situation and we're not fully prepared for what what's about to happen, we can get injured, um, or we could have a really bad time and then leave the club, which is not obviously what you you know as an instructor as a, as a coach you don't want people leaving. You don't want to put people off. Um, you certainly wouldn't want people to uh, you know to to be thrown in at the deep end before they're ready for it and then feel like oh my God, this kickboxing club is way too intense for me. I, I need to bail. And it, it really, you, you know, you'd be fine there if you just didn't go on the Fridays. So I think it, just, just having a, like you say, it's a two second conversation. It's very, very brief. It's just about acknowledging where we're both at. Um, you know, and I think there's a, a really important role here that, that coaches um, and senior members of clubs have in sort of setting that as a norm. If you think about, you know, norms and, and uh, the sort of cultural setting of, uh, of a martial arts gym. It's usually the coach or, or the, the more senior members that everybody else looks to and follows. They're the ones that set those norms, right? So if we can have that, that sort of um, that assumption of that responsibility and that recognition of how, how useful and important this will be, never mind about teaching people ethics in a broader sense, just in terms of the health of, of, uh, of the club and the health of the individuals involved in it. Let's just have those two second conversations where everybody just checks in, you know, maybe you're not feeling great today. Maybe you're injured. Uh, maybe you're, you're a little bit fatigued or maybe you're at the point in your training where you're actually tapering and you don't want really, really hard sparring. So just have that two second conversation, get out ahead of those problems. Um, you know, it costs you nothing effectively to, to be a little bit more explicit uh, but as I say, you know, we're all guilty of this. It's um, it's very difficult to, you know, to uh, to sort of challenge that when when that's what you're used to. Particularly, I think, um, not to waffle too much about this, but particularly if um, you have got quite used to your training partners and, and you're at that point of familiarity where you know you don't really need to uh, have those conversations because you know each other so well, you'll pick up on that, with, you know, without having to to articulate it if the club is mostly comprised of, of those kind of individuals who have those relationships with each other, and there's one or two others who don't, um, then there's a danger that they're going to get left behind. And then, and then you invite those, uh, those risks that we've already mentioned of being, you know, out of your depth or, or maybe getting injured and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sean uh, Desjardins and I, who's a instructor from Canada have spoken about the importance of that, even with training partners you are used to having, because, you know, if the, uh, assumption is that you're always going a 10 out of 10 really hard and then something happens to you like something quite emotional in your personal life but you've still come to training you still need to be able to vocalize that well today even though every single time up until this day it's been a yes today for me it's a no and that's that's really the root of consent as well which is that just because it was a yes once doesn't mean it's a yes today. And so just normalizing having those conversations sounds kind of weird and clunky and like robotic. And, and I can imagine like some eye rolls having the conversations with some people in the gym, but it's like on the one day that it really helps them out. I think they'd be like, Oh yeah. Okay. I, I understand why this is, this is a thing. This needs to be a part of our system. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Com completely agree with you. And, th and that goes back to, again, this, you know, we can use the, the lessons learned, the, the things that are valuable, the things that help us in a martial arts setting to um, have good training, to differentiate between fighting and violence and all the rest of it, to be ethical and to be happy. Um, those same principles are the, are the same ones that we would apply in other areas of life, which is what makes this potentially a very useful way to teach about the, these kind of ethics when you can demonstrate that, you know, this is what helps to make you um, a better fighter, makes you fitter, makes you a happier member of a club. Actually, in the same practices, that checking in, you know, can, yes, once doesn't mean yes, always. You know, it's a very basic lesson that, you know, you could apply certainly in, in 
the context of sexual consent. That's very clearly, obviously, the case. Um, but in all kinds of social um, interactions, you know, people um, are not the same from one day to the next, and your relationship with people will depend upon uh, those contexts and that they, they find themselves in from one day to the next. So being sensitive to that, uh, rather than simply assuming um, that it's it's you know that person is always the same with you no matter what's going on um, is clearly a very important thing. So you know we, we're very much. Um, we're very convinced that, that you know, martial arts offers a, a whole bunch of life lessons. And what we're tr trying to do with LFHV is to try and articulate that in a, in a clear way and to put it into something that's um, at least halfway practical that coaches can use if they want um, to, to sort of impart these kind of lessons. The stuff that we've produced, the, the coaching toolkit that I mentioned, it's probably more um, useful for working with younger people than with adults because you know, it, it's sort of games and activities. It's not sort of normal training things, but going through and, and engaging with that and maybe running those classes or helping to run those classes um, will itself be a really, you know, useful lesson for people to think about these things in a more, uh, you know, in a, in a clearer and more tangible way. So I do want to come back to consent again and talk about men getting consent from women and women getting consent from men in a training context. And I know you've written extensively on the gender relationships within training. But let's first touch on what you just mentioned about all the life lessons that are embedded in martial arts. Why is it that combat sports seem to facilitate greater personal development than traditional sports? Well, on that question, I think, um, you know, as an academic, I'm always a little bit sensitive to uh, the assumption there that, that they are, in fact, better than other sports. Um, you know, you and I are both experienced in these sports and have seen that and, you know, work towards realising those in um, in combat sports. Uh, but that's not to say that these things couldn't be learned or, or they're not learned through, um, you know, traditional sports. So I'd, I'd always be a little bit cautious with that as a sort of a, a general statement. Um, but with that said, I, I do think you're right. That there are things that are unique about martial arts that make it um, not necessarily a better way to teach these things, but certainly give it unique opportunities for teaching certain types of life lessons. And for me, I think the most uh, important of those things that are unique about martial arts is, is the combat aspect. You know, it's because what we're doing here sits so close to, uh, you know, quote unquote, real violence. It's very, very similar. It's the kind of things that we're doing um, are the things that you would do in a violent in interaction. Because of that, it makes us think about violence and it makes us think about those ethics. And, you know, we have to have some kind of engagement with that problem of, um, you know, this is a violent activity, isn't it? Well, no, it isn't. And, and this is why. And it makes us think about it. It makes us be reflective about where the distinction between uh, what we call fighting and violence rests. Um, so for those reasons, I think, you know, this is a really, really useful opportunity because you've got an audience here in a martial arts setting who are already kind of primed to be grappling with this ethical, um, this ethical issue, yeah, if, if you sort of follow where I'm going. Um, so I think that, you know, that is um, perhaps the, the primary thing. Um, maybe also the fact that this is an individual-based sport, but at the same time has quite a strong team element. Um, certainly most gyms that I've trained at and conducted research at, there's a strong sort of sense that we're a team in this club, even though the sport itself, if you're, if you're competing is, is an individual sport, there's still that sort of strong team emphasis. And because of that, you've got this, uh, that that kind of fosters and lends itself to a, a culture of collaboration and caring for one another, which I think is borne out quite well in the, the research literature on, uh, on martial arts subcultures, particularly in competitive uh, martial arts settings uh, where you have to have this sort of nurturing and caring community uh, in martial arts gyms. Now, that's certainly not the case in every gym, 
Um, but in the gyms that I'm that I'm personally familiar with, and, and yeah, as I say, it's borne out fairly well in the, in the research literature. Uh, you do get these opportunities for um, you know encouraging this kind of personal growth and, and taking responsibility to help others to grow and, and so on and so on. So there are a few uh, unique aspects, I think, of, of martial arts that make them good opportunities for this kind of teaching, even if they're not necessarily um, the best or definitively better than uh, all other sports. What about self-defense? Should we be advertising martial arts as self-defense? <laughs> That's another, another huge question. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you well, summarise just like absolutely huge, probably PhD papers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's bound to be there's volumes of, of, uh, of work that could be written about this. Um, coming from a gender studies perspective, I'll shift gears a little bit. Um, yeah. There's... Well, no, first of all, let's go with the, the obvious thing. So martial arts as self-defense, well, it, what are you defending yourself against? So if we're thinking about the kind of violent altercations that we're likely to encounter in, you know, particularly if you are a, um, a middle-class person in an affluent society who, you know, whose daily life does not bring you into contact with, um, you know, sort of violent crime or you're unlikely to be harassed in the streets, um, you know, if we think about the whole Black Lives Matter movement right now, it's really highlighted the issues around institutional racism. You know, if you're a white person, you're much less likely to be involved in violence and so on and so on, you know, when it comes to police brutality and all that sort of stuff. So if we're taking like the, the, the kind of people that I'm used to training with personally, um, generally white, middle class, um, you know, fairly safe lives, right? The kind of things that we're likely to need to defend ourselves against day to day, um, you know, we, we don't we don't need to defend ourselves. Let's be honest. We're not going to be involved in um, interpersonal violence of the kind that people like to imagine when they think about martial arts as self-defense. Maybe a little bit different if you're younger. Maybe there's bullying at school. A little bit different if you're in a society where there is more um, sort of interpersonal violence as it is a fact of life, um, or if you uh, yeah if you're in a particularly marginalized group and so on and so on. But the majority, I think, of people that I'm used to training with, this idea of I'm training martial arts so that I can defend myself. Um, it opens up a lot of questions about what it is you imagine you need to defend yourself from. Um, most people, I think, imagine this sort of fisticuffs in a bar kind of scenario, maybe. Um, if that's the scenario that you're preparing to defend yourself from, what are you actually learning that's going to help you to defend yourself in that scenario? So I think there's a lot of questions that need to be asked about what are your assumptions about what you need to defend yourself from? What kind of things are you actually practicing to be good at? What kind of teaching methods does your instructor use to prepare you for those scenarios? Um, and so on and so on. And I think when we start to unpick all of those, those sort of questions and, and variables, probably, and I, I'm making a bit of an assumption here because I, I haven't researched this myself, but probably the majority of things that are taught in martial arts classes aren't actually that useful for self-defense. Uh, if that makes any kind of sense. I feel like I might have waffled a little bit there. No, definitely. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea that we're, we're fighting and it's not violence, fighting is contained within a set of rules. So kickboxing is not that useful in the street because the other person can grab you and take you to the ground. Jiu-jitsu is not all that useful because the other person can strike you. Even MMA is not infinitely useful because there are things that you're not allowed to do purely because they're too violent for sports. <laughs> yeah, that's my thought on it anyway. Yeah, of course. And, you know, you, in the streets, you, you might be outnumbered. You know, you don't see your environment clearly. It's dark and you've had a drink. You know, someone could be carrying a knife. You know, you've not practiced knife defence. So, yeah, I think a, a lot of the claims around 
um, learning martial arts for self-defense in the way that most people learn martial arts at the moment, in, in, um, certainly in, in the context that I'm used to. I don't think it's really, um, you know, really a very good argument. I think people learn martial arts for, for plenty of other reasons. And you could argue that there is a kind of self-defense that comes through um, becoming a more assertive person. You know, we mm-hmm. talk a lot about martial arts as empowering, right? Particularly in, in the context about, you know, why do you, uh, why should we promote martial arts for women? Oh, it's really empowering. Um, you know, that can mean a lot of things. That could be quite a misleading claim sometimes, I think. Uh, but there is a, a strong body of literature that suggests that women taking self-defense classes, um, you know, feel more powerful in their, in their daily life. They become more assertive. They, they're, um, you know, they, they feel they, they do better at work. Uh, their male colleagues take them more seriously, um, things like this. And you could argue that that's a form of self-defense, right? Not against that sort of stranger danger uh, attack in the street scenario, but a, a defense against a kind of um, a social system or a culture that devalues you and that encourages you to be quiet and to, to be passive. Well, martial arts actually helps to defend yourself against that. So it's a bit more abstract, um, but in that sense, perhaps, um, you know, a bit, bit of a better answer. What does the literature say about learning a combat sport decreasing the likelihood of victimization or re-victimization? So there's there's quite a bit of research. Um, there's a couple of names that, that spring to mind that your listeners might want to check out. Um, so uh, p- primarily, I would say look at work by Jocelyn Hollander, um, who's an American academic who's been working on, on um, women's self defence training for for a long time a couple of decades worth of research and she published loads of stuff on this. Um, she recently published, I think it was two years ago now, she published a review um, of studies that have, have looked at this, um, yeah, of, of the uh, victimization and of uh, the, the chances of successfully fending off an attack. So um, being attacked in the first place or, or successfully fending off an attacker if, if one is attacked. Um, and in both cases, self-defense training was shown to have uh, a significant impact. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of remembering this off the top of my head, so I can't be too specific. But um, if, you're, if your listeners do, do have a look for Justin Hollander's work, a fairly recent paper uh, among her many, many pieces that she's written on, on women's self-defense. Um, some really fascinating stuff there. I think, you know, you know, we've got about 20 or 30 years worth of, of robust empirical research on specifically women practicing self-defense. Um, in the context of reducing violence and reducing victimization. Um, and we have got a pretty clear consensus that this does help. There is obviously a strong sort of counter argument here that advocating women learning self-defense as a way of solving the, the crisis of, um, you know, violence against women is the wrong approach that, you know, we shouldn't be teaching women to defend themselves. We should be teaching men uh, not to attack women. And of course, that's that's not wrong. Um, you know, there's a, a huge problems with this sort of this normalized culture of male violence against women that need to be tackled by looking at what men do and what men think. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's difficult to argue with the efficacy that, that comes through with that data that, that shows actually, you know, this is helpful, this is useful. Plus all those other things that I mentioned a moment ago about those sort of personal transformations that come through, um, through you know, developing one's fighting ability is, it is empowering, no matter who you are. It, it gives you a sense of, of control over yourself and, and over your destiny and over your environment, uh, which is a, val- a valuable thing no matter what. So, um, yeah, I think that the literature, as far as I'm familiar with it, is very positive about the uh, you know the outcomes of women training in in, uh, in self defence. Less so, I think there's less clarity with respect to combat sports per se. If we want to draw that distinction between a, a self defence martial art, uh, which is specifically geared towards um, you know 
empowering people to to fight back against an attacker versus a, a competitive combat sport. The way that we train in those environments is different. The assumptions about why we're training are different um, and the people we train with will be different, of course. Um, so yeah, there's, there's perhaps a bit of a distinction to be made there. Uh, but yeah, the literature is pretty clear. This is a very positive thing. Yeah, I think I started to dip into it a little, little bit looking at some of the research coming out of Holland. I think developing, I don't know if you're familiar with a program called Beat or Vic Beat or Beat Vic. Um, it was a kickboxing program attempting to address victimization in women with, I think, first episode psychosis. I could be wrong, but their work is quite, you know, in its early stages of, I think, released a pilot at this stage, but looks promising as well with them needing to still tweak some, some different things. But, you know, I think on the whole, not that it's self-defense, but women probably need to play defense a little bit. You know, we can't just make the, the assumption or put all of the onus back onto men saying it's all the fact that men attack women and and therefore I'm not going to do anything for myself. I think it's still empowering to be proactive. And, you know, even when we are in a safe environment and you know that you're not going to be attacked, things that have happened in the past might have tricked your body into believing that you are no longer safe. And so therefore having the knowledge that your body is capable of performing fighting actions can be quite an empowering thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's this, this very important to clarify in this conversation that it's in, encouraging women to learn self-defense isn't about making women responsible for what happens to them in, in terms of violent confrontations. It's, it's a different thing altogether. The, the perpetrator of violence is the one who's responsible or the, the wider sort of culture that normalizes or even encourages it is responsible. The, the, the person who is the, the target of that violence is never responsible. Um, but by making oneself capable of resisting, um, not only is, does that offer the kind of personal transformations we've already discussed, um, but it also feeds back into that culture um, and, and changes the narrative that you know, women are just inevitable victims in waiting for the, 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 um, the violence of the male aggressor. If we look at violence studies more broadly, so outside of the gender question, outside of martial arts studies, um, there's some really, really interesting empirical research which, which argues actually you know, violence is, uh, is something that humans generally avoid we're generally not very good at violence we have that sort of inbuilt mechanism that's that, that kind of puts the brakes on when we when we come to violent confrontations that takes a lot of training to overcome um, and one of the things that that will encourage um, someone to overcome that resistance is the belief that they'll definitely win so if somebody thinks that they will definitely be able to to beat somebody else that gives them that kind of confidence that helps them to get past the um i'm drawing on uh, the work of a guy called randall collins here uh, he mm-hmm. described it as confrontational tension fear, this sort of physiological, um, yeah, it's almost like driving with a handbrake on, right? You, you, it sort of blocks you from acting, that sort of um, uh, adrenaline dump, uh, fight or flight, freezing up in the headlights kind of um, situation. One of the things that helps us to get past that confrontational tension fear is the belief that it's not really a confrontation. I can definitely win this. This, this person that I'm going to fight is, is incredibly weak. That happens when we outnumber somebody, when you have a large number of people attacking one person. Um, and it happens when someone believes that the person they're attacking is completely incapable of defending themselves. So one of the things that we might feed back into our, our, our culture of, you know, of, of normalized male violence against women is the recognition that actually women aren't um, easily viable targets and that women can be capable of fighting and capable of causing significant damage in a, in a fight. And if that becomes a more normal part of our culture, um, it's just one little chip away of this sort of um, monolithic structure of, of uh, sort of normalization of, uh, of male violence against women. 
And I don't think that's a bad thing. So seeing a lot of, you know, high visible, highly visible female combat athletes, um, you know, portrayals of, of women fighting in the media and of women being good at fighting. And then, of course, visual demonstrations or, or even, um, you know, hands-on physical demonstrations in the gym helps to change men's minds about women as, as targets. So I think that's another thing that, that sort of comes out of more women learning martial arts that's quite useful and, and, and worth thinking about is how that changes the narrative around women as easy targets for men's violence. So if more women go out into gyms, um, the majority of the time they're going to be in male-dominated gyms. What, what have you looked at in terms of those kind of relationships? What's it like for men to have to do sparring with women and what's it like for women to have to do sparring with men? So, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, the, the first few papers that I wrote were about this sort of, uh, this sort of topic. The headline, of course, is, is the ones where it, it all breaks down and where it's awkward and difficult because that's probably the most interesting thing to talk about where, where gender becomes a really um, sort of problematic aspect of mixed training. But it's important to, to remember, we've got to say next, that it, this isn't always the case, that you know, some men are absolutely fine with this and some women take to it like a, you know, like a fish to water, it's no problem. When that doesn't happen, uh, what we tend to see usually uh, in the study that I did, it, it was normally the guys who hadn't done a lot of sports with women, who hadn't trained with women when they were younger, um, who didn't have sisters who did sports, uh, you know, basically devoid of, of, um, uh, of female uh, sort of influence in, in terms of their sporting careers. Guys going into a kickboxing gym, a boxing gym, a karate dojo, whatever, and for the first time really in, in their lives being sort of training equally alongside women. You know, most sports, certainly in the UK, most sports are sex segregated, even in schools. You know, historically, when, um, you know, we have uh, physical education classes, we have many, you know, in, in many schools in the UK, they still actually teach them in, in sex segregated classes. Wow. So themes, yeah, yeah. I mean, not, not always. It's, it's far less common than it used to be, but it does still happen. You know, we still have job adverts for, for you know, a male PE teacher for the boys, a female PE teacher for the girls. Shouldn't be happening, but it, it does still happen. So we've got this very embedded culture of sex segregation, and it's not that normal for, for some guys at least um, to find themselves you know, training as a, you know, an equal partner uh, with a female um, you know, who's, who's wearing the same outfit as they are and is doing the same exercises as they are and is expected to do you know, all the same things. So that can be in and of itself, before we even get to the physical stuff, that can be quite disconcerting for some men. Uh, and uh, some of the interviews that I, that I did, you know, some guys are reflecting on it thinking, you know, wow, I was really taken aback by this. I didn't expect it. I'm going to do kickboxing. I'm thinking I'm going to be Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, in some like spit and sawdust, people have got like missing teeth and blood everywhere. And I turn up and there's, there's loads of women there, you know, what's going on? So that it's in itself was um, for some guys was quite disconcerting. Uh, but when it comes to the actual physical side of things, um, you know, some of the guys that I interviewed, they were saying, I know that I should because I can see everybody else doing this. And the instructor is telling us, you know, to hit each other, to, you know, to, um, you know, to spar with women and to, to do drills and so on with them. But I feel like this kind of, um, this inability, right? I can't do it. I physically can't do that. I can't hit her. You know, we're talking about guys who just started doing kickboxing, um, you know, doing doing technical drills with a with a, uh, a girl who's been doing martial arts since she was five years old. You know, so we're talking about a huge disparity in skill. They might even be the same physical size, but there's still that sense that this is like morally wrong um, for me to do this. So again, just to the, the caveat, this is not all men. Obviously, it's not even the majority, uh, but certainly for some, there was a this really profound, sort of deeply held physical resistance to um, to sparring equally with men, uh, with women. 
And that does go with time. The, the vast majority of the guys that I, that I interviewed, they said, you know, over time, as I saw what they could do when they hit me, I realized it was okay. And I, and I slowly came around and so on and so on. Um, but yeah, certainly when you don't have, uh, which, which kind of speaks to that, that issue we said before about the culture, um, you know, we don't have this image of women as as uh, you know, as, as viable opponents for men, right? We have this image of women as always being weak and viable, um, and you know, victims of male violence. If that's the only thing that we see, um, then the thought of sparring with a woman is for for men who don't have any any sort of other narratives about women's abilities. Yeah, that is clearly a, a very troubling um, prospect. And what about from women's point of view? Did you speak to many women? I did, yeah. So th- this is the first study that I did, as I mentioned. Um, I interviewed uh, roughly even numbers of, of men and women and, and uh, did a little bit of field research in gyms as well and, and watched them training. Um, for the men who were resistant and hesitant, it was it was awkward, it was it was difficult, it was you know something they had to work through eventually. Um, but for the women who were in those exchanges, particularly the women who'd been training for a little while, who were confident in their abilities, who knew how to take a punch, um, it was incredibly frustrating. So constantly they had to come up against this um, this guy, you know, another guy who's in the gym and he just isn't taking me seriously. He doesn't respect my abilities. And it's, it's kind of a waste of time for me to be training with this person because they're not, you know, they're not a useful partner for me. So from that sort of purely pragmatic point of view, I'm not going to develop at the sport if I can only ever train with, with people who are, you know, not taking me seriously. Uh, but also from a, from a kind of, um, you know, a social inclusion point of view, um, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of women enter gyms where they are, you know, one of a few women, maybe even the only woman in the gym and being, uh, you know, training alongside guys who are hesitating to do anything with them makes them feel like an outsider, like they don't really belong. And for a lot of the women that I spoke to, um, it wasn't just a frustration that they weren't getting good training themselves. It was also, well, I'm ruining everybody else's training by being here because they can't train properly with me. Um, which is, you know, this, this, it's a horrible thing to hear because it's not your fault, right? It's somebody else is ruining this and you feel like you're responsible for them ruining it, um, which is, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing to hear. And with that, that sort of thing happening, you know, some women told me that they left gyms because of it. Um, others felt that they, um, you know, they had to persevere. There was one more sort of obstacle they had to overcome, uh, which men would never have to grapple with. And because most of those gyms didn't have female leadership, it was a problem that coaches didn't understand. So you've got a whole bunch of problems there that, that these women had um, that they had to sort of deal with, you know, on their own, uh, most of them. Um, and actually, from a, from a methods point of view as a researcher, uh, one thing that I found was really interesting. I, I was a bit worried that the women I, I interviewed wouldn't, um, you know, that I wouldn't have enough rapport with them or they wouldn't really feel like they could open up to me. Actually, they were very eager to open up to me because it was a, a man who did martial arts asking them about this problem that, that no one ever asked them about. So, uh, you know, that speaks to how, you know, how much of an issue it was um, and how it was sort of unresolved in, in some of the settings that, um, that I worked in. So, yeah, all around, I think it could be quite a, a frustrating thing for, for women in those environments. There were some characters who, um, you know, were, were, had no problem in, in taking it into their own hands and forcing men to uh, to reckon with them by, you know, loading up on a right hook or something. Um, and we had some some nice little stories from uh, from some of my interviewees about that. Uh, but yeah, generally, um, that kind of when when gender became the most important thing about the interaction between a man and a woman, it, it had plenty of negative consequences uh, in in the uh, in the gyms that I went to. What about some of the alternative situations that might arise. So I'm thinking of a couple that I suppose are anecdotes. One is 
sparring with a guy and you'll land like a really good head kick or something like that, which like lightly because it's sparring, but still it's quite like, and, it, and if anyone's never successfully kicked anyone in the head or been kicked in the head in sparring, it's kind of like the holy grail if you're doing well is if you just lightly tap someone in the head just to be like, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but the response to that by the majority of guys is like, Oh no, no, no. Like I'm, I'm happy to go to spar with you, but as soon as you're beating me, as soon as I'm losing to a girl, I can't deal with that anymore. And I'm going to up the intensity now and show you that I am actually the stronger person because I have 30 kilos on you. I have 20, you know, however much it might be. But then as soon as it comes to that point, then they're no longer okay with, you know, we're, we're just going to work together trying to help each other get better. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same principle, but in, in reverse, almost, it's that gender becomes, again, the most important thing. So, um, you know, it's either I don't want to hit you, I don't want to touch you because you're a girl and you're fragile and it's, you know, it's dishonorable for me to hurt you or whatever. Um, so I'm not going to, to spar with you or, oh my God, suddenly my masculinity is at stake because I'm losing to a girl. So I'd better double down, right? And work really hard. So in both scenarios, it's the same sort of problem. Um, in, in my, my sample, admittedly, it's not the biggest sample size. It was a, a qualitative study. So it's more about the, the sort of depth than it is about the, the breadth of, uh, of the study, but certainly there were enough examples of men who would go both, you know, both of those directions. So guys who would just simply back off completely, uh, you know, she starts to land hits Well, I'm going to go even more defensive and, and, you know, I don't want to be here. Um, and then also those guys who, you know, as, as some of the women told me uh, that I spoke to, no, no guy would admit to this, by the way, uh, but the women that I spoke to, yes, they, uh, they often refer to that, um, you know, th- that kind of doubling down as almost an attempt to, to sort of reclaim and defend not only that person's masculinity, which they feel has, has been threatened, but also it almost feels like defending that space as something that belongs to the men. So, you know, you've, you've challenged my ownership of this activity, which I, I see as my sort of birthright as a guy. I've grown up imagining myself as a great fighter. And, you know, if, you, if you're anything like me, you know, you were raised on um, James Bond movies and, you know, the, the hero fights to defend the girl, right? The, the girl is almost like the prize for the hero's fighting. The fighting is what the man does. And so when a woman comes in and beats the man at fighting, well, I have to take fighting back for the guys. It's kind of like that, that attempt to reclaim the, the space and to reclaim the activity. And, you know, there's, there's actually a really nice, um, one of my colleagues, uh, Helen Alton, who's a, a sports psychologist, has written a fantastic piece about this in the book that I edited with, uh, with my colleague, Chris Matthews, about her own experience of being hit really hard by a guy in, in a boxing gym uh, after this exact exchange happened where, um, you know, she, she described feeling the sort of the weight of history behind those punches that this guy was trying to reclaim boxing from her encroachments that, you know, you, you need to be reminded that this is, you know, you're a visitor here, that this is actually mine. So it, I think it goes beyond just the, the sort of the individual worrying about their own status as a man. And it speaks to this ability or so this, this sort of um, maybe this kind of, unrecognized desire among those men to reclaim this as a masculine space. Maybe that's overreaching a little bit, but that's, that's one of the things that sort of that sort of springs to mind when I think about this issue. It's, it's not just about those individual men. There's also something wider happening here. Yeah. My other situation, which is 
like a personal one for me is that like I'm quite competitive and so I also don't like losing sometimes in sparring, which is a bad habit. Um, but that said, you know, so sometimes if you're sparring with a, with guys and then you'll start to want to push a bit harder if you're starting to lose. And there's sometimes, I don't know if others experience this, I'm, I'm sure probably some people do, but anecdotally there's sometimes this feeling of, oh, I can go as hard as I want because he's a guy. And so like me going as hard as I can isn't really him you know, isn't going to hurt him that much because it's like a guy going at 70, 80%. It's not, it's not full, full contact, (laughs) you know, but then the response to that is sometimes them seeing, I don't know, maybe it's not that they're feeling it so hard, but they're, they're feeling the emotion coming from that. And so then they're therefore hitting you back. And that's probably the times when I've been injured or, you know, well, sparring's just gone to a place where I didn't want it to go to, where it's probably that I've initiated the increase in intensity, but not been happy with the level that it's been met with. Does that make sense? It certainly does. Yeah. And I think that speaks to two principles that we've already covered. You know, one being the gender becomes the organizing principle there, and it really shouldn't. You know, we should be thinking about um, physical size, ability, um, injuries, health, and so on. It shouldn't be about sex, right? It should be about, you know, how good am I a match for my, my partner? Um, sex is usually a pretty good uh, vector for, for things like physical size and strength, but not always, right? Mm. So you, you could certainly have a, a larger, stronger woman sparring with a, a smaller, weaker, uh, you know, less experienced man. And that would be, you know, the inverse of what we would normally think about, you know, who's, who's the physically superior and so on. So that's the first thing, you know, it's gender again is it's kind of getting in the way and, and leading us to make decisions that we wouldn't otherwise have made about our training partners. If we think, oh, men, men can take it, they're fine. Um, uh, you know, on the other hand, we've got that issue that we spoke about earlier, which was, um, you know, explicit consent, right? How hard do you want to go? Well, I, I'm happy with going to this level, but not, you know, beyond. And making those assumptions about, oh, you know, he can take it, he's a guy. How much damage can I really do to to, to a guy? Um, you know, is, is missing out on what that guy is actually happy with doing right now. And if that then leads to him feeling like he's being challenged or, or you know being pushed into a corner and that he has to up the intensity, either as that kind of masculine recuperation thing we've already mentioned, or simply as a case of oh she wants to go harder. Okay, well I better match that so I don't want to let her down. And and then you get that kind of you know, if you're not speaking explicitly about it, you end up with this kind of spiral where you, like you mentioned, you know, you end up actually in a place you didn't plan on being um, and maybe getting injured or, or maybe just not enjoying it as much as, um, you know, as you would or getting, getting much out of it. So yeah, it kind of goes back to that point we raised at the start really, which is about, let's be explicit with our training partners about how hard we want to go. I think a lot of that comes down to how familiar we are with each other. Mm-hmm. And most of these issues, you know, on an individual basis, when we know our partners and we're used to training with them, um, it becomes a lot easier to figure that out on the fly. Um, but certainly when you, you aren't that familiar and when you factor in how gender can really sort of get in the way and cloud our, our, our thinking about these things. And um, yes, yeah, it speaks back, I think, to the importance of being open and being explicit about what you want to do um, when you spar. Yeah, it just really all comes back to that like key word of consent of saying saying at the start and then being in a training environment where if things are changing or even if as you're starting to get gassed, I think sometimes there's another thing where it's like at the start, you're like, yeah, yeah, I want to go hard. And then you start yeah. to gas a bit, you know, oh, we're going to, we're all going to cop this when we fully go back to training. Um, and all of a sudden you're just like, or no, now I'm getting tired and you're still putting pressure on me. Now I'm feeling overwhelmed, but you know, everybody feels too scared to say, 
let's just back the intensity off for the last bit of the round for this. And, and especially in a male, male-female dynamic, I guess, then that becomes even more important. So it's, it's really all just about us communicating with each other. As cliche as it Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty fundamental thing, but it doesn't make it any less true, right? You know, it, it's so many problems can be resolved if we were just a little bit more open about what it is that we actually want and, and what we expect from each other. And I think that's, yeah, for me, that's a, a very important thing, whether we're talking about gender and inclusion and empowerment and all those those themes and issues, um, or whether we're talking about violence or, or managing injuries or, you know, a whole host of things. If we could just be a little bit more upfront, and, you know, that comes back to the importance of having a coach that, that gets out ahead of this and says, you know, talk to each other. If you're injured, let people know, you know, if you've had enough, don't don't push yourself to a point of exhaustion. Don't push yourself to the point which you get hurt. Uh, and I'm, I'm lucky enough. I've, I've got coaches who, you know, who do that. And um, I've struggled with a bit of an injury over the last few months, um, you know, before even lockdown and, um, you know, having to opt out of, of sparring and people have you never know, said, you know, well done. That's the right choice to make. I train with a lot of older guys as well. So, you know, they, they're, <laughs> they've been through this drama enough times to know that when you, when you start to get injured, you should stop. Uh, and that's, that's really useful for me to, um, you know, to know that if I want to opt out and say, I'm done here, that I'm not going to be judged. I'm not going to be looked at funny. Um, and, you know, I think that that, that kind of thing is, is priceless for, for thinking about the long, long, longevity of, uh, of people's careers in martial arts, as well as, you know, including as many people as possible, being welcoming to new members and so on. Having that, um, that confidence among your members to, to be able to stand up and, and say, you know, this is too much for me. Um, it's very, very important. Let's pivot a little bit because um, we're going to have a very long episode. If I don't dig into this now, I could probably talk about um, this whole area for, forever with you. But women's portrayal in the media uh, as martial arts fighters, as MMA fighters, as women's MMA becomes bigger and bigger as for all athletes, as social media and a social media presence becomes more important in how many followers you have and therefore how many pay-per-views you can sell and how many fights you will therefore end up being booked or is, I guess, the perception as that, you know, that that's the way that it is. And, and certainly it's become more, you know, it's become a viable option for people to to get fights is to have a big social following. So there was a recent event i suppose in the in the media incident whereby a well-known very very famous on social media uh fighter in bellator so bellator mma she's a a world champion she she went to the olympics for taekwondo so a very accomplished martial artist in her own right already you know and absolutely looks aside like nobody looks amazing wearing a gi i promise um so she <laughs> she came out uh, was you know she was fighting against Tara Graf who was more the you know traditional women's MMA fighter and I uh, I don't even like saying that I don't think there is a traditional women's MMA fighter but you know much she was much less in favor of having a social following and and needing to post anything other than what you do as an athlete as a part of creating your persona as an athlete. And so she came out, um, so Tara Graf as, as, well, as well as um, Macy Chiasson is another one who came out and really, really criticised this 
this girl, Valerie Loretta, and they said that she was trashy and that, you know, they didn't want their kids to think that this is how you make yourself big in sport. And Loretta came back to that by, well, she won the fight against them, um, I suppose is one thing, but she then did like a very girly kind of dance on stage and then said, um, she said, stay true to yourself. There are no stereotypes. You don't have to look a certain way in order to be in an industry. And I just like, I think there's a lot of truth to what both of their, they're saying in some ways. And then in other ways, you know, it, um, what Loretta's saying in particular, even though, you know, she's saying, you know, you don't have to look a certain way as in, oh, poor me, I grew up with a with this, she's got like quite a curvy figure and that's very like in vogue at the moment. So she's kind of saying, you know, you don't have to look like what normal people look like. You can look like, you know, really curvy and feminine and then be a fighter as well and that, that then makes her a really good role model for for women who also look like that to then want to come into MMA because they see her as more relatable. There's been some of the other things that she said. So that's a lot to unpack, but I know you've written on these, these um, women living up to what men's expectations of them is, and then calling it empowerment, I suppose, without putting words in your mouth. But yeah, what would you say to all of that recent controversy? Yeah, sure. So this is um, certainly not the first time this has happened and it's not the only sport that it happens in. Um, this idea that, um, you know, you, you can have it all as a woman, you know, you can be a, a fighter, you can take part in a very masculine sport, you know, quote unquote masculine sport. And you can also be very sexy and you can um, stand up for women's rights by, you know, sort of being a being an athlete, being a role model and also, you know, sort of be this kind of old school pinup kind of thing. And, you know, there are so many sort of, um, potential contradictions, depending on, on what your point of view is, what kind of theoretical model you use to think about what's good for women here. Um, it, it, this is a complex issue. And I think a lot of the time we get these very sort of polarized one-sided arguments about it. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's an interesting one to think through. Um, you know, when I teach my students feminist theory, this is one of the kind of issues that I like to look at, you know, what, what is right and what is, what is wrong um, with these kind of statements. Um, is it empowering for uh, for you as a woman to um, you know to dress up in skimpy outfits and twerk on social media? Um, well, maybe if you feel powerful by doing it, and you know if you if you earn some money by doing it, that's that's good for you, right? You've you've managed to successfully sort of market yourself. Um, okay, I can see where that, that sort of argument comes from. That it's it's a good thing for you, and certainly there's there's no. Um, you know, I'm not going to stand up and tell people what they can and can't do with their bodies, right? It's it's something that you should be, uh, you should have the freedom to do that if you want. That's a, you know a, a pretty sort of core value for most Western societies, I guess. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, what kind of thing does that do to all women when um, the most successful women, the ones who get the most uh, social media following, the ones who get all the endorsements, the ones who become big names and get booked for for big fights or you know whatever whatever sport it's it's involved in, in a promotional sport. Um, if that's telling young girls that this is what you do to get noticed, that this is what's really valuable, right? So you can be a good athlete, you can train hard, you can have a good fighting body and all the rest of it. Um, but if you really want to get noticed, if you really want to get money, you really want to get paid and have a good career, you've got to take your clothes off for the boys. 
so you know there's there's swings and roundabouts here isn't it you know is, is this good for the individual in some ways yes um is it good for for the collective well not really right it, it's actually kind of harmful in some ways to the collective and this comes back to um a, a pretty core sort of debate among feminists between different uh, sort of theoretical viewpoints in feminism one emphasizing empowerment so what's good for you as, as a person to feel powerful as an individual um, and the other they're emphasizing um, what might be referred to as, uh, as liberation, let's say. It would go under different names and different different titles, but you know, a broader sort of women's liberation from old school patriarchy. You know, what are we going to do as, as individual women to work for the liberation of all women as a collective from uh, a culture which uh, you know, has, has disadvantaged us in, in various ways? And certainly from the liberation perspective, um, overtly sexualizing yourself for the male gaze in, in a much the same register as, as the the old school forms of, uh, of female sexualization is not going to be helpful, partly in terms of uh, reaffirming that, you know, to be, to be valuable as a woman means to be sexually available to, the, to, to a male audience, uh, which is something which, you know, a lot of feminists have, have contested for a long time. Um, but also in terms of this idea that, you know, that there's a, um, I mean, it, it really puzzles me that this, this is dressed up as like, this is a positive thing about my, my body. It's, this is celebrating a curvy body. Curvy bodies are already celebrated like quite a lot, right? Mm. Standing up and saying like, oh, you know, it's okay to be, to have big boobs. It's okay, guys. Of course it's okay. That's been okay since forever, right? That's been, that's been okay in the cover, uh, you know, in, in the, uh, the front cover of Playboy for, for a, a good number of decades, right? You're not challenging anything um, by, by shaking your boobs around. So yeah, I think there's a, there's a really sort of, um, it's kind of disingenuous, I think, that, that that's lifted up as a kind of positive thing for, for, for women's liberation to, to celebrate being um, semi-nude uh, as a curvaceous woman. That's always been celebrated uh, for reasons that are very closely connected to the exploitation of women's sexuality. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, contradictions and I'm not going to sort of say what I think is, is right or wrong here because this sort of circles back to okay, but is it, is it right then for people to say that you shouldn't be doing this, you know, that you shouldn't be using your body in, in the ways that you feel comfortable in the way that, that, that earns you, uh, earns you, uh, you know, the spotlight and, and um, the financial rewards that come with that. So yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one and it's a good one for debates, but it's not one that I have a, a quick answer to, I'm afraid. Yeah, I know. It's like, it was, I think it was great timing that we you know, you sent me the article because we've been talking a lot about this recently. It's like, is it okay? Isn't it okay? You know, and then sort of like, where's the line? Like if I, if I reflect on my own, let's call it a career, it's not really a career, but let's, (laughs) let's reflect on my kickboxing fights. Um, and I like to come out to Britney Spears. Like I'm quite vocal about, like, I really like to break the stereotype of coming out to rap music or death metal music. Like I don't feel like I need to be angry when I walk into the ring because I'm, I'm not going in with like bad intentions or any of the other ways that people are kind of trying to, to market. I'm going to go in to test my skills against a moving target. Um, and so I really like to not in a, in a sexualized way, not at all, but like in a silly way, I like to come out to like fluffy kind of music, you know, which maybe promotes the stereotype of like an airhead. I've got blonde hair, you know, that type of thing. And I was like, is it okay that I, that I do that? You know? Um, so I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I think- out of all of this stuff, and these are issues that that male fighters won't ever really have to grapple with, right? And I think that's the the thing that everyone can agree on is that this 
this becomes a problem for women, but it's never a problem for men, right? Thinking about, uh, am I being too sexy right now? What will people think? It's a problem that's uniquely uh, prominent among female athletes. Um, I think, you know, I haven't really put my cards on the table with this one. I feel like I was a bit evasive before and, and maybe, um, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with, with sexualizing people and, and with people choosing to sexualize themselves. You know, sexuality is a, it's an important part of being human. For, for most people, it's, it's a core part of their identities, right? Whether even if you're, you know, describe yourself as an asexual person, it's still, you know, you, you've got that element of your identity is at least defined with reference to sexuality. It's a, it's a very um, sort of central part of, of what most people experience as their, their personal, um, their, their life. Right. And a lot of being a fighter in, in a promotional sport, whether it's in MMA and boxing, um, if you think about pro wrestling, right. It's all about character, isn't it? You know, putting yourself as a personality in front of the cameras. And for many people that will be, um, you know, they'll feel that that's, that's an important part of who they are and, and what they are. So being um, you know, overtly sexual or choosing to, to sexualize yourself, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, I think. The problem comes when that's the, the only thing that we see. That's the thing that we see most prominently, most consistently. Um, that's the thing that we see most prominently, most consistently for women and not for men. Um, and when that reaffirms the idea that this is a true, that the true value of a, of a female athlete is um, how quote unquote, marketable she is um, with respect to, you know, is she skinny and a little bit muscular? Does she have boobs? Is she blonde? Does she smile a lot? And is she, you know, willing to take her clothes off and, and dance on, on Instagram? So if that's the, the main thing that women get valued for, I think that is a problem for, for numerous, in numerous respects, um, for both the individuals involved, um, but also for, you know, setting a sort of an example for young girls and, and also for men, right. That, that it's reaffirming that the, you know, this is what we should be valuing about women. So I think when that's the, the primary thing, the only thing, uh, the only thing that women get known for, then we're in problematic territory, uh, but that's not to say that, that, um, yeah, that being sexualized or sort of publicly owning and, and flaunting your sexuality is in and of itself a bad thing. I don't think that's uh, that's quite the same issue. Yeah, I think a part of that too, like one of the words you use really stands out is skinny. And because I think it's all good and well to say, like I'm empowered and like I feel amazing in my body and therefore I want to show it off and I want to dance and I love to dance. That makes me feel good but it becomes a problem in, in what I see and that people do a lot of that on like fight week. So if, if anyone's never seen anyone do a weight cut, it's quite <laughs> drastic. Uh, yeah. It's not the way that these people, like it's not the way for me, I'm, I fight at 10 kilos lighter than I am right now. And right now I look healthy. I do not look overweight at all. So that's, sure. that's how big of a difference that it is for a weight cut and but that's when a lot of those photos are taken that's when a lot of those videos are made and it really creates this unrealistic image that the media has already portrayed that says well this is what is attractive and these women happen to fit into that ideal for a snapshot of time during which they're very unhealthy um and they're extreme risk of getting sick before the fights or you know definitely just after because their immune system is so compromised but for a little a little snippet in time, it just looks amazing based on the media's fake portrayal of what is a healthy, sexy woman. And I and I do think that that is a really big problem too. Is that it's fine? I think it's fine if you're going to do it. It's fine if you're going to post naked pictures of yourself or like half naked pictures of yourself. But like, let's see the ones 
when you're like out of fight camp as well and <laughs> you're still feeling empowered and sexy just because you're comfortable with your body not because your body now fits the media's ideal of what is sexy yeah i think you've absolutely nailed it there it's it's that 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 body that you're confident with and that, that you're very positive about and proud of that you've worked hard for and that you want to show off etc you know that's highly amenable to the, uh, the the sort of norms that we have that say this is what's beautiful, right? So we've got this structure, this system that values women's bodies when they look, um, as you as you've said, you know, in, in a way that looks very actually is very unhealthy. We think of it as beautiful, um, but that that level of um, you know skinny, but also with with breasts, um, you know, being uh, you know really it, quote unquote in shape and, and so on and so on. That is you know it's very very difficult to get that body for starters. And also when you do get that body for most people, it's quite unhealthy. So by not challenging that structure, that system that says this is what's beautiful, actually we're, we're sort of reinforcing it and contributing to something which is, um, you know, which is damaging in, in numerous respects. So you might feel very positive about your body when it looks the way that you're told it's supposed to look, but maybe think a bit more about whether or not you can be positive about your body in other ways, right? About whether people can be positive about their bodies when they don't look like this. And I completely agree with you. Yeah, if you're going to do all that sort of stuff, let's do it all the time, right? Don't just do it when you um when you you've got that perfect uh, filter on and when you you've cut weight and so on and so on. Let's let's push body positivity beyond the the boundaries of this um you know this highly restrictive and and extremely unrealistic uh, image that we see all around us all the time. This is something that that feminists have been arguing about women's sports for a very long time. This is empowering and it's it's liberating and it's got a really really strong potential to um to offer women um something different to the way that they've been told to think about their bodies for generations right to, to experience your body as powerful to have the joy of movement to have a body that's for you right a body that does stuff a body that takes care of business a body that can do things that um we've previously believed that female bodies couldn't do right let's celebrate that aspect of sport and not at the same time turn it back to well yes but your body's only really valuable if it looks like this yeah let's let's wrap by telling everybody so we've already said we need to be more open about speaking about consent talking about what you feel comfortable with what you don't feel comfortable with in terms of on the mat or in the ring or wherever you might be training in in a martial art what other advice would you give to women listening Um, I, I mean, I guess that, that for me is, is speaking as a, as a bloke, there's only so many things I can say, right. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm conscious about this, you know, sort of speaking to and for women about women's issues. Um, but based on, on the research that I've done, you know, the, the men that you're with, um, if you're, if you're training in an environment where men are not used to training with, um, with women, um, you know, they, they're probably a little bit confused. They might be a little bit, um, unsure if particularly if you're quite good and they aren't uh, they're bringing potentially bring quite a lot of anxieties with them um, and it's not your responsibility to solve all of those those anxieties um, but certainly the way that you interact with them can can help them to to get past that and I think the um, you know what some of the women that I interviewed uh, mentioned the strategies they adopted uh, I think some of those strategies work better than others so just just clobbering somebody to, to force them to reckon with you may not be the best way to go about it uh, but open dialogue uh, usually is, is a very helpful thing to do and for anyone who's listening who, who's a coach 
Um, I think it's you know recognizing the responsibility that, that you have to set the uh, the tone for the for the culture in your gym is is super important, and making sure that the the other sort of assistant coaches and senior members are all on board and help to foster a culture which is uh, which is inclusive but is is open um, and and helps to foster that kind of um, that dialogue and that engagement between practitioners whether we're dealing with the gender issue or, you know, sparring intensities or whatever, um, it's so important to get that right. So um, yeah, hopefully this has been uh, of some use in, in figuring that sort of stuff out. And if anyone's interested in the, uh, the LFHV games that I mentioned earlier, uh, do drop me an email. Um, happy to give you my, my details to, to stick on this um, later, Georgia. Uh, if you want to have a little look at the, the toolkit to have a look at some examples that we've used to help teach some of these things, then um, I'll be happy to share those with you. Yeah, if, if you're happy to, I'll put your email address in the show notes here. But where is the best place on, you said you guys are getting into social media now for everyone to connect with you? Yeah, so you can find Love Fighting Hate Violence if you, if you look for us on Facebook or on Twitter uh at lfhv official on, on twitter uh, so we're not that active at the moment we've been we've had a few other things that have, have taken um taken precedence for for the last uh, few months or so uh, but do have a look for us there we've also got the website uh, www.lfhv.org uh, where you can download a copy of our, our manifesto and see some other bits we've put on there um, but the best way really is to just email me if you've got any questions or, or you're interested in the campaign, um, if you want a t-shirt, we've got a few t-shirts I can send to you. Um, so do drop me an email um, and I'll get back to you when I can. And so we're talking about raising awareness. So I know you guys are not that um, active on Instagram because I tried to have a look. Uh, but I think <laughs> if, if we want to say, if we want to start some conversations around, you know, why you love fighting and hate violence, then, you know, I'd don't know if the hashtag love fighting hate violence has been that used, but maybe people want to talk about their experience with, you know, with their training and, and with their understanding because anyone who's trained for any length of time, I think most people know inherently that what they're doing is quite different to violence. So sharing that and, like we said, raising that awareness of what the difference is and, and sharing more of those kind of stories too. So maybe we'll, we'll try and get the hashtag love fighting hate violence going a bit and hopefully that'll direct people towards your website as well. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you, Georgia. That'd be much appreciated. I have to keep an eye on Instagram. I'm not much of an Instagrammer as you, yeah, as you well know, but I will have a, I'll have a look on there and see what we get. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely the new Facebook for the younger generation. So. I know. I feel so behind the times. It's, it's crazy. I don't think of myself as old, but yeah, this, this sort of thing um, <laughs> makes me realize I've got some catchy up to do. <laughs> You're all good. Um, so that is us. That's a wrap on this episode. Thank you so much for sitting down to chat with me. We've gone for over an hour. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Good fun. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Fightback Podcast. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. And if so, could you do me a favor? Could you pretty please leave me a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts? If you're on an Android, message me and I'll tell you which platforms that I'm on and you can leave a review for as well. Um, but yeah, I would just love to hear any and all feedback that you've got and it really does elevate the podcast and help it be heard by many more people around the world. I also want to say a big thank you to Nari for the beautiful song Shape Me, which is heard at the beginning 
beginning and the end of every episode on this podcast. Nari wrote this song about Shape Your Life, which is a boxing program for self-identified female survivors of violence in Canada. She wrote this song using the words and experiences shared by participants with Kathy Van Ingen. And of course, you can hear more about Shape Your Life in my interview with Kathy in episode eight of the Fightback podcast. And if you love Nari's amazing work, you can hear more of her by going to her Instagram. It is at Nari the Saga. You need to know that nobody shapes me but me. Don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless I fear nothing, no complacence Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this Poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders You don't need to know my history, I move boulders Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers This goes deeper than empowerment, cause... I'm the one to power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience. Meets power meets gracious. Meets, we're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifesting of collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection, I could see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands, I break all these bars, barriers, and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers because I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass. I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much. I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me because I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth. Forget that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh? Oh. 